Good evening. On this week's programme, we're looking at the career of an Irish recording pioneer, Bill Stapleton. He was the man behind Ireland's first record label for traditional music, the Irish Recording Company. Stapleton established a studio in Dublin in 1947. He did work for Radio Wern and travelled around the country to record musicians and singers. His recordings of top musicians were hidden and unheard for decades. The variety of music he recorded gives us a snapshot of what was going on musically in Ireland 70 years ago. I'm joined now by Harry Bradshaw, a leading figure in Irish sound engineering who has digitised and remastered the music Bill Stapleton recorded in the late 1940s. Recordings Bill made were recently issued on two CDs, both bearing the title Tashka Lokfer, Valuable Treasures. One is primarily a collection of Illan piping music issued by Napibari Illan, the Society of Illan Pipers. The other CD is fiddle music that's issued by Cardus Nafidleri, uh, the Association of Fiddle Players. Harry, first of all, tell us a bit about Bill Stapleton's background. Bill Stapleton was born on the 3rd of March 1921 in Kilkenny City. His father was Daniel Stapleton, his mother was Amelia Morrow. Now, his father was a very interesting man, Dan Stapleton. He came from Tullamane near, near Callan, and he was a, a really noted figure because at the age of 18, he captained the Kilkenny hurling team and over the following few years won three All-Ireland medals. Now, that made him almost royalty in, in County Kilkenny. He was doing all of this while he was studying to be a chemist, which was an unusual job for a young Irishman to have as well. So he qualified and coming up to the War of Independence, his knowledge of chemistry was very useful to the local volunteer brigade, which he joined. So he became their chief bomb maker and, you know, did whatever he, he was ordered. He was also notable that he had, at that time in Kilkenny, a Harley-Davidson motorbike. Not too many of them knocking around. <laughs> and he used to scream around Kilkenny City and County. So he, he was a well-known figure. So this is Bill Stapleton's dad now that we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, just a fascinating character. Very much so. But anyway, his skill in the field of detonations came to the attention of headquarters in Dublin and he was brought to Dublin and uh, oversaw some bomb making in Dublin. When the treaty was signed, he showed his total commitment to the new free state by not resuming his old job as a chemist, but he accepted a commission in the new Irish army and moved his family from Kilkenny up to Dublin. They settled in an inch core, and Bill and his brother, he was one of four, the youngest of four children. His brother, Doniel himself, were, were educated by the, the Christian brothers. He didn't like school, didn't like the formality of, of the whole curriculum, but was very good with practical things. He had a motorbike at the age of 13. At 15, he put his pocket money into buying a scrapyard car, restored it and drove it around Dublin at the age of 15. He soldiered through school, wasn't happy with it, 
got his intercert, but pleaded with his parents to let him do something more practical. So they relented and allowed him to go to Kevin Street Tech to study radio. And he excelled at electronics. In 18 months, he tore through the city and guilds courses that he was doing and passed with distinction. Unfortunately for him, he left Kevin Street with his qualifications late in 1939, coinciding with the war. No chance of starting a job and whatever. So after a few months hanging around, in July of 1940, at the age of 19, he enlisted in the army. The second signals corps in Portobello, he was sent to because of his electronic experience. Within a couple of months, his superiors recognised his talents and offered him a commission. So he became second lieutenant Stapleton. When did he then get involved and when did he start the Irish Recording Company in Moor Street, which would have been just around the corner from the GPO, or Radio Aaron as it was then operated from? Well, during his army service, he met another young man with a, a flair for electronics, Adrian Andrew, an officer. And the two of them decided that when they got out of the army, they would build and operate a recording studio in Dublin. Recording studios were very thin on the ground in the Ireland of that time. So they were demobilised in 1946. They set about setting up their company. They called it the Irish Recording Company Limited. They met another man, Roy Browett, who was keen on what they were doing. He had knowledge of administration and he, he came on board as well. So the company was set up at the end of 1946 They acquired premises in Moor Street, 33 Moor Street, to be near to the GPO, Radio Warren, the top of the street. And they had the studio fitted out and they were in operation by the summer of 1947. Now, at that stage, the industry standard was still recording to disc. Tape hadn't appeared yet. Just remind people of what exactly you're talking about. It's It's a wax disc. This was instant recording. You recorded onto an acetate disc, as it was called. It was a wafer of aluminium, and on that was a chemical on the top and bottom. You recorded straight onto that. It was instant playback. Nothing had to be done. There was no processing. So it was used in radio. If I came in to record something here or whatever it would be recorded on an acetate disc and that could be instantly played back. So this is what they're doing. And I mean, do are people coming to them to record stuff? Do they have to go out on the road? How are they conducting the business of the Irish Recording Company? Well, having got established and set up, they then had to create a business because recording was unknown in Ireland at that time. So they decided to go on the road and create a business. They placed ads in newspapers in different parts of the country, make your own gramophone record, inviting people to come in where they were. They were in Waterford for a couple of days or in Kilkenny, three different venues in Tipperary. You could come in to wherever they were, depending what your party piece was, if you sang, played the piano, whatever, you could walk out with your own record. For and 30 shillings. One of their clients was the Mick Delahunty Orchestra, which was a kind of a Glenn Miller knockoff, was it? 
Mick Delahunty started his dance orchestra based on the American big band's 16-piece. He'd started in 42. He, he was on the way up by the summer of 48, heard of what IRC were doing and booked them for a day's recording in Clonmel. Now, there were no recordings. Mick Dell never made records. People raved about him, but, you know, with no recordings, how could you judge how good he was? These records came to me just before the lockdown. They were donated to the Tipperary County Museum. They got in touch with me to replay them. When I dropped the stylus, the hair stood on the back of my neck because here was unwritten history. Here were records of a band, superb musicianship, beautifully recorded. That's the Mick Delahunty Orchestra. That was recorded in Clonmel in the summer of 1948 by the Irish Recording Company. It was a Glenn Miller medley. Um, tell us about his wife, Eileen, because she's important in professional terms as well as in personal terms. Eileen Lane, who was to become Eileen Stapleton, was the daughter of a well-known accordion player at that time, Terry Lane, who hailed from Cootail in County Cavan. And Terry was a detective, but a great accordion player. He had made several records for the HMV company. They'd come into Ireland and recorded them, and he was regularly featured on Radio Aaron. Bill heard him. He recorded a concert, uh, an army concert down on the Curra in the autumn of '48, and Terry was on the bill. So Bill invited him to come into the studio to record. He agreed to do it on condition that his daughter, Eileen, could accompany him on the piano. Well, I met him through um, the Irish Recording Company, which Bill had then, and he was going around the country trying to spot talent in the Irish music field. I actually didn't meet him until he had it well established, you know. But... um, he was in the army too, and he used to do these uh, army concerts. And uh, seemingly, he met my father down there at one of the concerts. So we asked him to come in to uh, the studios, which was in Moore Street. Of course, my father wouldn't go without me, so I went in to do my bit on the piano. 
and uh, I met Bill, as I say, through that. So after a while, he kept asking me would I come back in and there were other musicians coming up and maybe give them a wee bit of a hand on the piano. The recordings that we did, we had many artists up into the studio. So as I say, we met an awful lot of people, lovely people indeed. So things developed from there. And that was in 1948. And in 1950, we became engaged and got married. So he wasn't just impressed with her as a piano accompanist, obviously. Um, Tell me about that recording. It's never been broadcast before. I was doing a series back in the 80s called The Irish Phonograph, which dealt with old recordings. And Bill was dead at that stage. I never met Bill. But I tracked down Eileen, mainly because she was the main accompanist of Sean Maguire. I told her what I was doing. Fiddle player, yeah. Told her what I was doing, asked her could I talk to her on tape. She agreed and I went out and spent an afternoon with her in Bray. And that's how the the recording was So you use the Sean Maguire material, but not the Bill Stapleton material. Okay, we'll come to how and when your interest, uh, your appetite for Bill Stapleton was whetted, as it were. But tell us about the next recording. This I found fascinating. You've brought us a recording of uh, a trio, the Bruce Clark Trio. But of more significance is a young singer who is accompanying them, who is somebody I was unaware ever had a career of any kind in Ireland. Tell me about this recording. The singer was the young Val Dunican, who was just setting out at that stage. Funnily, one of the places Bill made his early recordings around the country was in Waterford. And Val Dunican, as I think he was about 14 or 15, turned up with Bruce Clark, who's a local piano player, and they made a record in Waterford. There was only one copy ever made. I believe it's in Nottingham, but I've never got my hands on it. But sponsored programmes came back to Radio Ireland in 1947, September 47, after the war. Bill knew that this would be really his bread and butter because he was ideally placed to record for sponsored programmes. And he did work for IMCO. I don't know if you remember that sponsored programme. Gatto, the cake makers, Harry Brogan, Prescott's and other cleaners. And I remember the Donnelly's programme went out at 1.15 every Saturday afternoon, Donnelly Sausages. The man who presented that programme was Niall Bowden, worked for O'Kennedy Brindley Advertising, and he was strolling one day down Bray Prom, and on the bandstand were two young fellows performing for, for visitors. So he he was taken by them, stopped and listened, spoke to them after their performance, told them who he was, and said he'd be interested in having them on his radio programme if they would add a double bass player to give them a bigger sound. They jumped at the opportunity. Val and Bruce had both moved to Dublin by this stage. They were both playing in different dance bands in Dublin. But this was a great opportunity to be on the radio, which was the big thing. So all of the recordings that they made were recorded on disc and then Niall presented them, did the 15-minute programme live and played the tracks. All of the recordings they did were made by Bill Stapleton in their studio. Only two fragments exist, and this is one of them. 
It's Bruce on, would you believe, a slide Hawaiian guitar, which was very exotic in Ireland at that time. <laughs> Val is on guitar and vocals. The bass player was a man named Whelan. And on this occasion, they were joined by an accordion. But they could really swing on this Gene Autry song. Definitely recognise Valdunic. It's not as velvety a Valdunican voice. No, it's a it's young Valdunican, but it is it is there. And as I say, I wasn't aware that he had any career in Ireland. To me, Valdunigan was somebody in the sixties, I suppose, who arrived on our television screens fully formed. But obviously, you know, you can no, hear. No, he served his apprenticeship, yeah, he served in, his apprenticeship in, in, in Ireland. Okay. Now, uh, Bill Stapleton recorded a wide range of material, very, very different types of music, didn't he? Yep. Their main bread and butter business was for sponsored programmes, but they filled out in between the radio work with literally anybody who came in the door of the studio and could pay the money, they would record them. So I put together here just a, a brief example of this. The second one is a school choir, don't know what school it was, in their hall singing away. The last piece is a very uh, striking piece. It's an unknown stride piano player from the jazz scene in Dublin. The first track is one which is typical of the work they did, I suppose. It was a family who came in, a young man with his two sisters. They were singers. He introduces them and the record seems to be a birthday present for their mother. We will now hear, here amid the shady woods, Lorna will sing, accompanied on the piano by Mary, for all our relations and friends, and especially for Mama.
a bit of boogie-woogie piano to finish that little medley, a sample of the range of material recorded at the Irish Recording Company studio on Moore Street in the late 1940s. Now, um, he is starting work, or certainly uh, for the bulk of his his career, you have this transition, as you were talking about earlier, between the disc, the acetate disc, recording straight onto that, and then something that, you know, I would be, more familiar with at the beginning of my career and obviously you would be uh, more familiar with as well, Magnetic Tape. Um, Was he successful because he embraced it at a time perhaps when others might have been sceptical? Embraced Magnetic Tape, obviously. Well, recording to disc was still the industry standard, both in in radio and in, in record companies making record. Magnetic Tape was developed by German engineers and scientists in the years leading up to the war. And they perfected it then during the war years. The Allies knew there was something unusual going on in Germany, but they they couldn't pinpoint it during the war. They had listening stations, listening for clues, for intelligence. And on one particular occasion, Adolf Hitler made two speeches on the same night in Germany, one in Munich, and an hour later he made a speech in Hamburg. Both were live. And the Allies said, how how could this be? You know, there's no way you can get from Mm. the length of Germany. So they said... There's something going on. Something going on. But the the people listening said they are definitely not discs. And discs was the way everybody recorded. There are telltale signs on disc, you know, rumble and, and sizzle and whatever. So they said, these are both live. So the, the Allies came to the conclusion, there must be a new technology. And there was. And that new technology was quarter-inch magnetic tape. The magnetophone was the the name that the machine was given. Spooled tape went over recording heads and recorded on magnetic tape. But that didn't come in. Radio Wern bought its first machine in 1949. And I discovered that it was the same price as a semi-detached house in (laughs) Beaumont. That's how expensive they were. So tape machines were not going to be used by ordinary people. Yeah, obviously not. Um, now, you brought in another example of some of the jazz music that was recorded in uh, studio. This is by the Joe Cochran Group. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, there you have it. In defiance, no doubt, of the Down With Jazz movement. And that was the Joe Cochran Group, uh, C-Jam Blues. Now, the Irish Recording Company was the name of the studio that Bill set up, but it was also the name of a record label that he tried to get off the ground with, I think, mixed success. Well, in his travels throughout the country, he came across, he didn't come from an Irish traditional music background or family, but he saw that there was a lot of talent around the country. Traditional musicians were coming in and recording and whatever. Now, he knew that the the business of recording traditional music was controlled from London by the EMI company. And he thought, here's a niche that we can get into. Irish music should be controlled by Irish people. So he decided to set up a label called the Irish Recording Company, which would capture the cream of traditional performers around the country. Now, he decided that it would be a purist kind of label. There'd be no paddy whackery or, or whatever. He'd record the finest fiddle players, accordion players, illum pipers. He recorded a harper, Cayley bands, all top instrumentalists. He'd bring them to the studio and they'd record them. Being realists, they knew that spending power in post-war Ireland was limited, so they reckoned the way that they could make this work was to, after they'd recorded the tracks, to export the masters to America, where there was a huge market among Irish Americans and the records would sell in big numbers there. So that was their plan. Why did the plan not work out? What happened? What went wrong? Because it did go wrong. In the course, again, of his travels, he met a representative of a company which he thought was the ideal fit for them, a company called O'Burn the Wit in Boston. They were a long-established company set up in 1910 in New York by a Leitrim woman who had emigrated as a 17-year-old and it was the classic Irish story. She said in an interview years later that she arrived in New York with a small bag of clothes as a 17-year-old. By the time she died, she was a millionaire. She opened a music store on Third Avenue in New York, selling Irish music primarily to Irish people. In 1926, she decided to expand and she opened a branch in Roxbury in a very Irish area in Boston. And she sent her second son... Justice, she had married a Dutch emigrant from The Hague, Justice DeWitt, and their second son, Justice Junior, was sent to Boston to run that business. He was a representative of that company. As a sideline, he established a tour company and he arranged holidays for emigrants coming home. And it was one of these representatives that Bill met on the road. But he thought that this fit with the O'Byrne de Witt Company in Boston was perfect for him. So a tentative agreement, a verbal agreement was made with the O'Byrne de Witt Company that once he had produced a cross-section of discs, they would release them into the American market. What happened? What went wrong? Bill kept to his side of the bargain. He established a fairly big label, We don't have complete details of everything. Some discs are missing. But from the evidence that we have, it appears to be that he recorded between 65 and 70 discs. 
that was about 130, 140 sides of top traditional music. He selected a number of those as samples showing the musicianship and the recording quality and sent them to the Boston people. Waited for a reply. No reply came. What did come back to him after a while was word that the discs had been released in Boston. No contracts were offered and no payments were made. So he got royally ripped off. They basically pirated yeah, the material. very common in, in the music business. But from Bill's point of view, he reckoned that he couldn't continue. His name would be impugned back home. People would jump to the wrong conclusion that he had got a load of dollars and the musicians didn't get their fees. So he had no money to pay the musicians, but the musicians were aware of the fact that somebody somewhere was making money out of it. So poor Bill Stapleton, as you say, yeah. his name was Mud. The wrong conclusion would yeah. be jumped to. So Bill decided, being an officer and a gentleman, that he would simply close the book on his label and get on with his life. We're going to hear a performance, one of the performances that he recorded, because the good thing is that although nobody in Ireland got paid for any of this, the recordings still exist. And it's actually the first track on the piping album issued by Nepibri Illen. It is Seamus Ennis, who accompanied the great Alan Lomax when he came here in the the 40s and uh, 50s around the country to record material, to record traditional music. And this is Two Jigs, Kitty's Rambles and Sixpenny Money. and uh, Two Jigs, Kitty's Rambles and Sixpenny Money recorded by Bill Stapleton's Irish Recording Company in the in the late 40s. Now, another one of those sessions involved a, uh, a famous fiddle player, famous, uh, I think he was from Sligo, Paddy Caloran. So tell us That's a little right, bit about yeah. him and, and some of the recordings that Bill, he made. Bill managed to get performances from some of the top fiddle players of the day, Dennis Murphy from Schlieve Lucre, Aggie White from Ballinacill, in Galway, the young Sean Maguire, who was just starting out at the time. But really, the, the jewel in his crown was on the 3rd of August 1949, probably the leading traditional player in the world at that time, Paddy Killorn, came in and spent a day recording. Now, Paddy was from just outside Ballymote, had emigrated to New York and became highly established there as one of the great players. The two best-known fiddle players in New York were Sligo men as well, Michael Coleman and James Morrison. But by 1949, they had both died, so Paddy was the heir apparent. 
and he was a great fiddle player. But he spent a day with Bill and the recordings are sensational. from Sligo and Captain Kelly's Reel. How did these extraordinary recordings fall into your hands? Certain amount of serendipity and happenstance. When the crash landing came and Bill realised that it was a disaster, he got on with making a living as a sound man. He went to England for a few years, trained in television, came back to work in the Phillips Company in, in Dublin but was drawn back into the the studio business back in in Ireland and was actually to build two more studios in the the next few years. But he realised that he had done something special and unique in gathering all of this music together because, remember, this was Kieran McMahona didn't get going on the road until 1954. Seamus Ennis was collecting music around the country and Seamus advised Bill, I think, what was... I mean, Sableton presumably recorded almost as much music, if not more music, than Adam Lomax did in the, in the 40s as well. Oh, yeah, mm. yeah. But Bill, knowing that he had got something of, of, of great value, packaged up the discs of the Irish Recording Company, the label that never was, and gave them to Brendan Brannock, who was the, the great collector, for safekeeping. Brendan kept them didn't do anything with them. And about 30 years later, I got to know Brandon very well when I was producing the, the Long Note programme on radio. Brandon rang me up one day and said, Harry, come out to my house. I wanted to give you something. So I went out to his house in Block Rock and he gave me two large, heavy boxes. Didn't tell me what was in them. He said, I was given these. I regret that I never did anything with them. I'm now giving them to you. You look after them. You're responsible and do whatever you think. No pressure. No, no. (laughs) Do whatever you think is proper to do with them. I said, thanks a million. Came home. I was up to my eyes with RT work and whatever. Put them in my attic. Never got a chance to play them or listen to them. I didn't know what was on them because he, he never told me what was on them. Come the lockdown 30 years later... Everything shut down and I thought to myself, 
I don't want to be haunted by the ghost of Brandon Brannock. I better do something with these records. So I got the boxes down, played them, and within one or two discs realised... I, I knew of Bill's attempt to set up the label and I had interviewed his, his wife, Eileen, and she told me details of the story. But I realised this is the label that never was and realised that this was gold dust. OK, well, you mentioned Eileen. Let's hear from her again. Let's hear from her and that interview. And as you say, that section of that recording that's, uh, that was never actually broadcast. So here again, talking about uh, her husband's career is Eileen Lane, Bill Stapleton's wife. Most of them that came in were all very shy, you know, and really new to the game where it was a great thing to maybe sit down in somebody's house and have a few tunes and all, but it was a different thing when it came to the thing of turning on that light, the red light, and sort of say, OK, lads, go. But uh, most of them I did fill in with the piano, sometimes just to give a little bit of moral support, you know. And uh, most of them didn't turn out so badly at all. It was only a question of getting them going. And then you had the real... McCoy. Harry, the big question all of this raises is what would have happened if Bill Stapleton's idea for a traditional music label hadn't gone off the rails? I mean, it it would have changed the the course of Irish recorded music because I suppose, you know, Clather Records in the 60s would have been the equivalent and that was successful. But that's, what, 15, 20 years later. Bill was first in the field and first to get the idea. Galen released their 78s from 1957. So Bill was almost 10 years ahead of them. Mm. He was 12 years ahead of Clada. Who knows what would have happened, but the, the landscape of Irish music recording would have been completely different if things had gone according to plan and Bill had been treated properly by the company in America because obviously that was only a start. What he sent out to them were basically demos. If they had released those and everything had worked to plan and he was paid and the musicians had been paid, he would then have gone on, we presume, to record more and more music. So the the whole landscape, the history of recording Irish music in Ireland would be completely different if they had been released. So Harry, our next piece is a mix of two accordion players. Tell us about Sonny Brogan and Paddy O'Brien. As I said earlier, he recorded lots of fiddle players, the top pipers of the day, and various accordion players. Paddy O'Brien, who was just starting out at that stage, Paddy from Nina, became a leading accordion player. Sonny Brogan, who was a, a top accordion player in Dublin, is the other person who's featured on this quick mix that I, I put together. Thank you. 
performances by Sonny Brogan and Paddy O'Brien. Now, um, Bill Stapleton also recorded Cayley bands. And I mean, it's a while back since I discovered, I always assumed that Cayley bands were part of the Irish tradition, never realising, of course, that uh, bands that had pianos, accordions and drums would not have been around in the 18th century or the 19th century. And saxophones, (laughs) exactly. So, I mean, they were a, they were essentially an RTE a radio air and construct, weren't they, back in the 20s or 30s? Yeah, it was felt that um, a way of, of producing music for listeners, you could, you could have individuals, pipers or fiddle players or whatever, but if you brought together a group of musicians and they played as a kind of a, a band, that it would have more impact. Now, from America, the American record companies had started bringing five or six musicians together as a band, and there were numerous uh, examples of that on record. So between what was coming back from America on record and what was been played over to RN or Radio Earn made Cayley bands very popular. And by the 40s and 50s, they were at their peak. So Bill invited in several Cayley bands. The White Leaf and the Silver Stars name doesn't mean much to us today, but they were both bands that featured Terry Lane, the accordion player. Other bands that came in were the Column Kill Cayley band, the McCusker Brothers from Armagh, the King Cora band, which uh, featured um, Kathleen Harrington. They were very Sligo-based. But here's an example of the Column Kill Cayley Band. That was the Column Kill Cayley Band as recorded by Bill Stapleton and the Irish Recording Company. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear more about the life and the recording career of Bill Stapleton. Stay with us. Welcome back. On tonight's show, we're looking at the work of pioneering sound recordist and music producer Bill Stapleton, whose Irish recording company, set up in the late 1940s, was the first traditional record label in Ireland. My guest is Harry Bradshaw. Harry, the next piece we're going to hear is the army band of the 1940s, presumably, yeah? This was probably the most unusual of all the recordings that Bill included in the label. And release number 1040 was an army band with chorus. Now, military music, martial music was highly popular throughout the world, I suppose, in the 20th century. And we can see this underlined when in the earliest years of the new state in 1923, 
the new government brought in a bandmaster from Germany, from Berlin, to take over the music side of the Irish army. This was Fritz Brasse. And he took over the, the various bands in the Irish Army and was the first director of the School of Music. Now, Bill, with his connections with the Army, had no problem, I presume, in getting permission for one of the bands to record. This wasn't obviously done in the studio because there's a big sound and you couldn't put a full army band and chorus into the studio in Moore Street. So he did it either in possibly the, the hall in the Curra, where we know he recorded a band, or in the School of Music. Interestingly, though, this is one of the most difficult recordings that Bill ever faced because he had two microphones, and he had to mix those, he had to place them, balance them, and then combined, they went into the disc cutter. An army band was a, an awkward thing to record, but just listen to the results that he got with his two mics. <laughs> Stapleton's recording of the army band there. The final recording that you brought to us is by a tenor, Frank Ryan. Who who was Frank Ryan? Was he one of the successors of John McCormick? Was he a highly successful Irish international tenor or was he, you know, a domestic success? Well, to round off the label, Bill decided that the last disc, which was IR1082, would feature an Irish tenor. Frank Ryan was the man that he selected. Now, Frank was born in Fermoy, moved to Tallow in County Waterford, where he was a farmer and a butcher, had a great natural tenor voice. By the, the late 1940s, he had appeared on the Theatre Royal, had been on Radio Ayrn, and was seen, many people thought that he was the new McCormack. John McCormack had just died at this stage. A great natural voice, Bill selected him and he recorded a couple of stirring Irish tenor pieces for the label. Let's 
Frank Ryan singing The Wests Awake from that recording by Bill Stapleton and the Irish Recording Company. Finally, why is it important that we remember Bill Stapleton? Firstly, because of his skill. I mean, he was a great entrepreneur to have that idea to go out and do it. This was a costly thing. The amount of studio time and Master lacquer discs were expensive. So he'd recorded 120, 130 sides. So his entrepreneurship in doing this should be noted. The strange thing is that nobody knew that these recordings existed because I think Bill must have looked on it as a failure. Mm. He hadn't nailed down the business end of it properly. So when he gave the disc to Brendan Brannock, he quietly forgot about them and the musicians just dismissed it as something that didn't happen. His skill as an entrepreneur was only matched by his skill as a sound man. Mm. He made superb recordings. He equaled what came out of his studio on Moore Street, equaled what was coming out of the best studios in London and New York, which is an amazing, you know, compliment, but you could hear the results yourself. But I suppose the most important thing is that through his efforts, we have these recordings of some of the best traditional musicians of the 1940s period, when we were told Irish music was on its last legs, Irish music was almost dead and it needed the Flakyol to arrive and then Kieran Macmahon to start travelling the country. But Bill Stapleton's work cancels this out because Irish music was in a very healthy state in the 1940s as we listened to his records. So he did a great job in gathering up all this material and then recording it to such a high standard. 
Well, uh, thank God for the lockdown. Otherwise, you might never have gone up into the attic and brought those recordings down. It's been a pleasure listening to you um, waxing enthusiastic about the work of Bill Stapleton and the Irish Recording Company. Those two CDs that were issued last year are called Tashka Lukfer, Valuable Treasures. And the piping album was put out by Napibri Illan, the Society of Illan Pipers. You can get uh, more information on that. Email info at pipers.ie. The fiddle album was issued by Cordish and the Fiddleri, the Association of uh, Fiddle Players. Again, more information there on uh, their website, www.donegalfiddlemusic.ie. And uh, also, if you're interested in this topic, you can contact Tipperary County Museum, mary.mcmahon at tipperarycoco.com. Ie. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. My thanks to our guest, Harry Bradshaw. Details of uh, all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks uh, tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.